Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. One year ago today, The Decibel launched, and we want to thank all of you, every one of our listeners, for tuning in over the past year. It's been quite the year. Uh, But no, I think in all of the elections that I have covered over more than 30 years, I have never seen a bigger waste of time than this one. This one is just, you know, it's the no fun Olympics. When they heckle you for wearing a mask and when they honk their horns at you for wearing a mask. More and more research is showing that after, you know, six to eight or more months, a person's immunity to COVID does start to wane. Uh, If dairy prices go up, it does impact everything else in the grocery store typically. This is a very catchy song. Yeah, it's kind of annoying how appealing it is, which means it's very appealing. Then you, as the CEO, as the person who sets the tone from the top, should be required to speak at least basic French. Something I noticed right away uh, when I was speaking with refugees fleeing Russia's invasion of Ukraine, almost instinctively, many show photos of home. So today, We're catching up with people we've spoken to over the past year about some of the biggest stories to find out what's happened since. This is The Decibel. One of the biggest Canadian news stories of the last 12 months began in May last year with the announcement from the Tecumlubstishkwapum First Nation that the ground-penetrating radar revealed unmarked graves around the site of a former residential school. We spoke to Raymond Frogner, the head of archives at the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation, who told us that many more graves could be found. There's 139 schools in in the residential school settlement agreement, and it is known that almost every one of those schools had some kind of a makeshift unmarked gravesite. That's known. This began a reckoning across the country. The Globe investigated the wealth of the Catholic Church, who oversaw most of the schools. The Globe also spoke with residential school survivors. This was a terrible place, though. That place down there, on the end, there was really lots of sexual assaults happened on that end. Down, down, like in the basement, mm-hmm. okay. under the stairwell. I felt guilty for so many years, saying, "How come? How could we not see it? Mm. We were so innocent too." But I will always, every survivor will always carry that guilt. Not so when I get to the mission, our clothes are being taken. And no matter how much we protest, no matter how much we cry, there's just, it doesn't matter. We didn't matter, and that's where every child matters comes from. Searches continue on the grounds of former residential schools. We spoke with Raymond again to ask how the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation is continuing the search for missing Indigenous children by combing through historical records. Currently at the NCTR, we are working on a project, phase two of the project actually, titled Missing Children, and that is to go through all of the records we hold to try and determine every single piece of evidence that we hold that might give indications of a, of a child lost. Could you just give us a sense of what kind of records we were talking about here? Just to go to the to, to as an example, um, we have photographs 
from the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, we have approximately 100 recording, recorded statements from sharing panels and sharing circles that discuss by survivors and their relations um, the experiences of residential school. They're actually audiovisual recordings. We're taking them and producing transcripts that we will then do full text reviews of searching for keywords such as lost children, illness, orchards, mm -hmm. those kinds of things. And curiously, there is a, an archive in Rome, a general archive of the Oblate Order, mm -hmm. uh, which I'll be going to inspect in, in July uh, to see what they have there. Um, I and you'll have, you'll have access to those, to those records there that's, then? That's under discussion. Um, we're still negotiating with them, but we now, uh, we've learned that uh, there is a general archive for the Oblate Order in Rome. It's not the Vatican archive, um, to be clear. <laughs> this is a different set of records completely. Which you still don't have access to, the, the Vatican no. archive. Um, and, and, you know, frankly, I would be surprised that the, if the Vatican did hold any records of the operations of residential schools. Hmm. I'm, I'm going to read you something, Raymond, that you said on this show last year, because I, I want to get a sense of, of where you think we are now. So last year you said, quote, there needs to be an acknowledgement of the social engineering project that was residential schools. Once that acknowledgement is completed and affected, we can begin to do the hard work of building new relationships across settler and indigenous communities. Raymond, has that acknowledgement happened? I think it's begun. And I don't think there is one single statement that will ever embody that kind of an acknowledgement. Reconciliation, as the TRC has pointed out many times, is um, the process of building trusted relationships over time. And those relationships of trust begin with an acknowledgement, and then they'll be ongoing for lifetimes. Uh, I do sincerely believe that we're, um, we're entering a new chapter in the relationship between the settler community and Indigenous um, communities. How that's going to play out, I think, is up to us to decide. But I do think people will look back on this generation and think that times have changed at this point. So after everything that's happened in the last year now, Raymond, what happens next? At this point in time, we're aware of over 60 different communities that are undertaking or beginning to undertake research into unmarked burial sites across the country. And for us at the NCTR, as the archives of those, of those schools, records of those schools, that's our primary job at this moment in time, working with those communities to help them do the research into these unmarked burial sites. What then gets discovered and how those discoveries are, are processed in greater society in, in general and um, dealt with uh, in terms of, of, of building relationships with these communities um, across that settler uh, indigenous divide, that remains for us to, do, to, to play out. As I've said many times before, you know, we are what we choose to remember, but we're also what we choose to forget. This is one of those moments when we're making those decisions. Oh. Raymond, thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you very much. Another big story was BC's heat dome and atmospheric river. They caused a deadly heat wave, massive wildfires, and devastating floods. The town of Lytton, BC, was completely destroyed. Globe climate reporter Catherine Blazebaum covered it. The entire main street has been razed. Uh, we know that at least two people have died. There are people missing. We've had reports of people who are having trouble being in touch with their loved ones because, you know, some cell phone towers were actually disabled due to the fire. So we don't know how many people are missing. We don't know how many people have died. We don't know yet what caused this, this devastating fire. Two people died in Lytton because of the wildfire. We recently got an update from Catherine on how the town is doing now and 
how the government is preparing for possible future disasters. So I think uh, things have been moving slower in Lytton than residents would have liked. It was only really as of a couple of months ago that the removal of debris started happening. And uh, there isn't full access yet to the town. It's unlikely that we are going to see a heat dome event of that kind, you know, in the extremely near future. However, we do know that Global warming is making extreme heat events much more likely, much more frequent, and much more intense. So one of my colleagues in BC actually recently wrote about the emergence of what are being dubbed, quote-unquote, resilience hubs. They're basically community shelters that coordinate communication and distribute resources during climate-related disasters and disruptions. Uh, And as my colleague put it, some people liken them to nuclear fallout shelters for the age of global warming. So when it comes to floods and wildfires, British Columbia is joining Canada's direct-to-cell phone alerting system. The tool, though, won't be used for extreme heat events like the heat dome that we saw in the Pacific Northwest in June and early July of last year. You know, already they were using them for tsunamis, amber alerts for abducted children and civil disturbances. But now it's going to be used for uh, wildfires and floods as well. Another story from Western Canada happened in the old-growth forests on Vancouver Island. You might remember hearing about a place called Ferry Creek. It was where protesters camped out at the top of massive trees to stop them from being cut down. I'm about 150 feet up. My job here is to protect these trees and to protect this forest. We spoke to BC legislative reporter Justine Hunter. Collectively, the objective is to change government policy. So it's not to stop logging per se, but to stop cutting down what's left of BC's old growth forests. We caught up with Justine to see if the protests were still happening. Today, the protest over old growth logging in British Columbia has changed, but it certainly hasn't gone away. We're still seeing blockades and arrests, but the tactics are different. People are gluing themselves to highways and getting in the way of urban commuters. It's also starting to work its way through the courts now, so there have been more than 1,200 arrests tied to this protest. Just over 400 people have been charged, and of them, about 50 have been sentenced. So the maximum sentence we've seen so far has been two weeks in jail. On the political front, the provincial government is feeling the pressure, and They've promised to set aside about two and a half million hectares of the most rare and important old growth forests in BC. But that process is moving slowly while they work on agreements with individual First Nations communities. Meanwhile, the forest company Teal Jones is still logging in this valley with the support of the local First Nations. I spoke with one of the organizers of these protests, Joshua Wright, the other day. He was on his way back up to one of the camps in Ferry Creek. He told me he was disheartened that it seems to be business as usual in BC's forests, despite everything the province has committed. But he says there's still an appetite for civil disobedience in other parts of the province, where he says there are First Nations that clearly want their help to stop old growth logging. The last year was unfortunately also marked by war. In the latter half of 2021, Russia built up troops along its border with Ukraine. And then, on February 24th, Russia invaded. 
A few days after the war broke out, we spoke to Maria Avdieva in Kharkiv, Ukraine. Maria is a research director for the European Experts Association think tank. Our producer, Madeline White, was preparing Maria to come on the show when an explosion made us hear just how close the war was to her home. We knew later hit the residential areas. Oh my gosh. Have you heard that? Yes, I heard that. That was very loud. Wow. Was, was that close? Yes. Are you okay? Do you want to stop? No, we can go on. I just will ask my... Uh, uh, I will just... Uh, uh, Do you want to check? Close the window. Gosh, that's yes. really close. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Do you need to move rooms? Uh... No, I can, uh, yeah, I, I can stay here. Uh, you can go, uh, yeah. Maria is still in Kharkiv, about 40 kilometers away from the border with Russia. This is eastern Ukraine, where Russia's now focused most of its military might. The fighting has led up in the western part of the country, and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau even made a surprise visit to the capital, Kyiv, last weekend. But where Maria lives, they're still under fire. Hi, Medi. This is Maria Avdieva from Kharkiv, Ukraine. I have been staying in the city since the beginning of the war on the 24th of February, and it has been already 70 days, and every day Russian troops shell heavily the city. The humanitarian situation with the time gets uh, more and more uh, difficult because uh, people are getting out of money, getting out of supplies. The queues to get humanitarian aid are getting more and more longer. There was some several cases when uh, these humanitarian aid centers were also attacked by Russian troops and people were killed, those people who were staying to get uh, in the queues to get some food. The heaviest battle is now uh, going on around Izum, where Russian troops are now attacking Ukrainian positions. And uh, they, uh, the Russians have uh, significant losses and very heavy fights are happening there at the moment. And we will see the development there in the upcoming days. There was also more conflict in Afghanistan. In just a matter of days last summer, we saw the Taliban regain control of the country more than 20 years after the American-led coalition arrived. Canadian forces left in 2014. The Globe and Mail was involved in rescuing three Afghan families from Kabul. They were in danger because a member of the family had helped either the Canadian military or the Globe as a translator. The rescue was intense and involved the Ukrainian special forces. United Nations? Yeah. Yeah? yeah. Who, who is the, in the second bus? One of those translators who was evacuated with his family was Sharif Sharaf. And they will maybe uh, keep in a hostage, maybe detain us or maybe kill us. I don't know. Sharif, his wife, and their five kids are now in Canada. Sharif spoke to us from his new home in Scarborough, in northeast Toronto. 
when we moved from Afghanistan, I promised with my wife to be in a place in Canada to be with the, with the Afghan, Afghans, Afghan culture, Afghan food. Uh, you know, we are Muslims. That's uh, the mosques are important to us to be very close mosques. And uh, I was trying to do that. And uh, I'm very uh, thankful from uh, mostly Canadian uh, friends that they helped me. And finally, we got a home. It's five minutes walking to the mosque, uh, uh, 10 minutes walking to the Walmart. Many Afghans uh, are living and we have a good relation with each other. One of our most frequent guests from the first year of our show was economic reporter Matt Lundy, which isn't surprising because what's happening with the supply chain and inflation have been some of the biggest news stories of the year. Back in June, Matt broke down the supply chain problem for us by explaining why buying a bike during the pandemic was so hard. Now we're in a second pandemic summer and you still can't really buy a bike? Like, that's that's wild to me. A lot of people say 2022 is going to be crazy. Uh, some people say 2023. I spoke with a guy in New Brunswick who said to go back to pre-pandemic levels where you can walk in and just find a selection of bikes, it's going to be 2024. So were Matt's sources right? We checked in with him about the state of buying a bike in Canada this summer. Buying a bike is going to be easier this summer. It's just not going to be like normal. So a lot of retailers say that they're able to get things in stock a lot better than they used to. One person put it to me that if you took in your 12-year-old last summer uh, to get a bike, they probably had nothing. This year, you might not get the color you want. So things are improving. It's just not what we had pre-pandemic. With China in pursuit of a zero COVID policy or continuing to shut down factories and ports, that the bike industry is just so exposed to what happens in China, like you cannot find a bike, or at least it's nearly impossible to find a bike without something that is made in China. Uh, it makes their COVID policies really the key issue in bike building. I noticed last year there wasn't nearly as much availability. Clearly, those people selling used bikes were doing quite well. I even considered selling my nice bike because I was like, I could turn a profit on this thing. But it seems like there's more availability this year. It does seem a little bit better. Um, you know, we had two summers of people buying tons of bikes. Are we going to get a third summer of that? Like, this is an unprecedented boom in demand for the industry. I don't think anyone expects it to just keep on going, right? Like, how many bikes do you need? As for Matt, he managed to sidestep the international supply chain issues and buy a bike secondhand. My new bike is this like vintage Bianchi and a, you know, fairly good, like old Italian steel bike that I got for only like $300 and it's in fairly good shape. I moved on it quickly because it seemed very attractively priced. This one's white with like a few accents and things like that, but not my favorite color, but it's still a really nice bike. Let's leave the earth behind for a second and let science reporter Ivan Semenik take us into space. The James Webb Space Telescope launched Christmas Day 2021, 
and hurtled away from the planet to unveil the mysteries of the beginning of the universe, as Ivan explained it. One of the exciting things uh, and one of the big expectations for James Webb is that this will really be the telescope that starts to unveil kind of the first assembly of galaxies, the fir- you know, these how, how matter sort of started to congregate to form the galaxies that we see today, including galaxies like the Milky Way in, in, in which we live. So where's that golden-plated telescope now? Webb spent a month traveling to its operating location, about 1.5 million kilometers from Earth. One image released this week shows a field of stars in the Large Magellanic Cloud. That's a satellite galaxy about 150,000 light-years away that orbits the Milky Way. In a side-by-side comparison with the same part of the sky seen in a previous year by the Spitzer Space Telescope, a predecessor instrument, the web view is outstandingly sharp and clear. At the same magnification, the stars in the Spitzer view look more like fuzzy blobs. To end, let's go back to the very first episode of The Decibel. It was an interview with health reporter and columnist Andre Picard, where we asked him, are we in the home stretch of the pandemic? As it turns out, we weren't. Last week, the World Health Organization published a report saying that around 15 million people worldwide have died because of the pandemic in the last two years. I recently spoke with Andre to get his take on what's happened over the last year and where he thinks COVID-19 is headed in the coming months. You were our first ever guest a year ago on the first ever episode of The Decibel, so it's nice to actually have you back to kind of come full circle for the year anniversary here. Yeah, it's hard to believe we've been talking about the pandemic for two and a half years nonstop, but... Just looking back on the the last year, Andre, do you think that there was an event or something that happened that history will record as a turning point in the pandemic? Uh, I think to date, the big turning point is Omicron. That really changed the whole uh, landscape for us. It was a, a variant that was much more infectious. So a lot more people got infected. We stopped counting cases. It really changed the way we're approaching the the pandemic. There was almost a sense of giving up at that point. So I think, yeah, that's something when we look back in history at the pandemic, that's going to be a big moment. What surprised you the most, if anything surprised you, about how the pandemic has unfolded in its second year? I think the big thing for me in the last year has been just how inured we've become to death. Like, we just don't pay attention to it anymore. We're approaching 40,000 deaths in Canada, a million deaths in the U.S., and people just shrug it off as this, you know, it's a cold, it's nothing, uh, we have to get back to normal. And it's quite shocking to me how we have accepted this level of death that's almost like kind of from the Middle Ages that we accept this in the 21st century. Uh, a lot of those deaths, of course, occurred in, in long-term care homes in Canada. Uh, and, and a year ago, things were still quite dire for seniors living in these centers. I want you to hear a clip from last year when, when you spoke to us about how you described the situation there. So l- let's listen to that. Thousands of people died between uh, March 22nd and April 22nd of 2020. Maybe 5,000 people. This was a mass death event that I don't think we understood fully in the media at the time. Uh, We've had 24,500 deaths in Canada. 17,000 of them have been in long-term care facilities. 
and nothing has happened. Nobody has paid a price. Andre, a year later now, have we seen any accountability of public officials or private companies for for what happened to residents of long-term care homes? No, sadly, we haven't seen an accountability. We haven't seen any dramatic change in how we treat elders. Uh, what's happened is a, a massacre of neglect. You know, you heard those numbers from a while back. Now it's uh, more than 21,000 elders have died in these homes. They haven't stopped dying. They benefited greatly from vaccination. That really slowed the rate of illness and death. But people are still dying and the people dying are still older. And a lot of people's response to that is, oh, well, they were going to die anyhow. And that's not true. Uh, I find it very depressing that the number one response to this uh, massacre in long-term care homes has been governments saying they're going to build more long-term care homes. That's not what we need. We need a totally different approach to how we house elders in smaller, safer facilities at home. We have to make every effort to keep them in the community where they're much safer, and we haven't done that. Let's talk about the vaccine rollout now, because that's one of the big things that's really happened in the last year. Uh, You know, 12 months ago, most of us didn't even have a single shot. But now over 80 percent of Canada's population actually has two doses of of a COVID-19 vaccine. When you first spoke to us a year ago, you gave a prediction as to what the vaccine rollout might look like in the future. So let's let's play that back for you now and, and, and hear what you said. So I think what we're going to see eventually is there's going to be COVID cases, but the vast majority of us won't have to worry. We'll probably get our annual booster shot uh, probably at the same time as the flu, and it'll just be part of our daily lives. Do you still think this is what the future holds for us, Andre? Uh, unfortunately, no. I'm thinking of this Yogi Perra quote that uh, I don't like to make, to make predictions, especially about the future. It's always dangerous to do that. And there's an example. I think uh, what I didn't take into account and what the experts didn't take into account at the time was uh, how much uh, variance would change the game. I think we've learned to, to say about the vaccine, it's not going to stop you from getting infected. It's going to stop you from dying and ending up in hospital. The other thing about vaccines for me is uh, the rollout It was kind of chaotic at the beginning. In Canada, we had this weird strategy where we bought all this vaccine from a bunch of different companies. We're the only country in the world that did this. And that actually worked. And it worked by default. It was an accident, but it worked out well for us. But what concerns me now is the third third dose. Fewer than half of eligible Canadians have the third dose. And it's just another example of what I said at the outset. We've kind of given up. Uh, And that's unfortunate. You know, we could do a lot better on the rollout of of the third and the fourth shots for some people. And just lastly here, we asked you a year ago how you think this this pandemic will end. Uh, And this is what you told us then. The pandemic's not going to end with a victory parade. It's going to be just kind of fade away out of our lives. It's gradually going to disappear. So I, I don't think you can put a date on it. Do you still think that? Uh, Absolutely. It's even less likely to have a victory parade than before, I think now, because it's just been dragged out longer. It's been culturally, politically really divisive. I I think, sadly, we're going to end up with a society where half of us have decided that it's done and the other half are still living with some some fear. Uh, And that's not a good place to be in society, to be divided. We need sort of more solidarity about this, some middle ground where we we do our best to protect the vulnerable and we do get on with life. I think those are both possible simultaneously. Andre, thank you so much for for taking the time to speak with us again. Thank you. And thank you for embarrassing me with some of my bad predictions. (laughs) Thank you for for putting up with, with the fact that we did that. Thanks. 
that's it for today. Thank you so much for spending the last year with us. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Allie Graham helped produce this episode. Our producers are Madeline White, Cheryl Sutherland, and we want to welcome our newest producer, Rachel Levy-McLaughlin. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.